Welcome to the hashtag Faring Pod. At Faring, people come first. My name is Zoya Mabuto Mugoditwa, and in today's conversation, I am joined by Mandy Rodriguez, who's a clinical psychologist in private practice. A warm welcome to you, Mandy. And uh, maybe to kickstart the conversation, tell us a little bit about yourself and what does your occupation entail? So, hi there, and thank you for having me. I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice. I also sit on a couple of boards that look at reproductive health and the prevention of maybe infertility and complications. I also do staff training, looking at how do we manage issues like heart attacks, health issues, moms, babies, parents, families, and then do corporate training as well in the afternoons in terms of the relationship between the mind and body, because we know this is a big field that's emerging right now. Mm. So it's an it's a all-encompassing practice, but my main focus and my passion is about moms and babies. And I think it's fitting because in today's episode, we are going to be discussing the psychological impact of postpartum hemorrhage on the mother, father, the family, and the caregiver. And maybe I suppose to, to, to get us going, let's, let's, let's understand what are we talking about when we, you know, when we, when we talk about postpartum hemorrhage? What is it? PPH. Again, I'm not a medical doctor, but in terms of my understanding, it is the loss of more than 500 mils of blood during delivery or the month subsequent to the delivery. And obviously, there's different kinds of severity and there's different implications because the end result is it is a big cause of um, mortality and morbidity in mothers, one of the biggest causes. So that is on the extreme end where we lose the mom and possibly the baby if we don't act quick enough. And there's long-term implications in terms of future pregnancies. Mm. So it's basically a loss of blood during delivery. And perhaps I think the, the, the I mean, you speak about the the implications of, of a postpartum hemorrhage. And I suppose this is what would lead to some of that emotional impact. And I'm curious about that, you know, based on the context of our conversation today. Would you say that PPH has an emotional impact on the mother? And if so, why? Yes, it is a big complication. The implications of it, as the mother's going through it, it's an emergency for the doctors. We've got to stop that bleeding as soon as we can. So there's panic stations going on at the moment, and oftentimes the mom is witness to this, and oftentimes the dad. And there's questions such as, is my wife going to survive? Is my baby going to survive? That is a huge trauma. Anything where there could be potential loss of life or potential long-term consequences is going to have a traumatic stress reaction. And then going beyond that, we can often not predict maybe in that next month whether the mother's going to start bleeding out. Again, it's not mom's or not a situation I want moms who have just delivered to be worried about. Hmm. It's not common, but it is something that is life-threatening. 
And, and I mean, you, you make mention of, uh, you know, traumatic stress reactions. And maybe let's just delve into that a little bit. What are some examples of traumatic stress reactions? And if we link it back to PPH, you know, could having PPH lead to some of these psychological, uh, you know, stress reactions? Yes. So I want you to think of typically a crime or typically a hijacking where people get a post-traumatic stress. We've always associated post-traumatic stress with war or crime or loss of life. It is something beyond the realm of normal human experience. So what do we do as if we robbed, we're suddenly going to be hypervigilant, very aware hmm. of a dangerous situation or a vendor potentially coming to our car. Our body almost reacts as though that trauma is happening again for mm. a few days afterwards. We get heart rate going up. We get an acute adrenaline response where it's a fight or flight reaction, where our bodies are saying, you've got to run away from the situation that's dangerous or you freeze. And so PPH or premature delivery or the loss of a baby or the loss of a family member can create the same situation. Mm. It is something that our minds struggle to make sense of, and it's a normal reaction until the brain can interpret what happened that we present with an acute stress reaction. So in PPH, it's very clear with the moms I see when they see blood in the future. Mm. It almost brings you right back to that moment of, seeing that blood in theater. If suddenly they walk into a hospital and they can hear a heart monitor going on mm. or they get given a drip in the future, unrelated to what happened, it's going to make them relive that entire experience. That's what post-traumatic stress is. Mm. It's your whole body reacting after the fact as though it's happening in that moment. And and and, and I just want to understand, because, you know, in, in doing some of the research, I come across terms like, you know, post-traumatic stress, certainly, which is what you've spoken to now. Uh, but there's also this acute stress disorder. Um, there's also the postpartum depression. Maybe let's just understand a little bit. What are the differences between, uh, you know, acute stress disorder, we'll call it ASD, and PTSD, which is what you've just described? Acute stress disorder is the immediate reaction after a trauma. That is when it's important to actually debrief an individual and say your reaction of adrenaline and fight or flight is very normal given the situation. In the situation, your brain is saying, this is dangerous. When I bleed out like this, this is not normal. Mm. And it's the body's reaction to say, I have to do something about it you're going to feel that probably to a lesser degree for about three weeks after any traumatic situation. If we don't resolve that, if we don't get support, if we don't get help, what happens is beyond a month, we start developing even worse symptoms or the symptoms worsen and that becomes a post-traumatic stress reaction. That becomes an abnormal reaction to stress. That's when... For example, in the Vietnam War, it was years later that you fight the war, you stress by what you do, but your brain says, what I did was good. I mm. fought the enemy and I came back. But the rest of the states actually said, you went into a country and you invaded some, 
someone that you shouldn't have mm. and you don't come back a hero. So everything you went through before starts being questioned and that's how post-traumatic stress got recognized. Same with PPH or maybe prem delivery. You can almost justify what you've been through if you walk home and you've got your baby. Mm. If you've gone through and everything you went through made sense because your baby's healthy in the end mm. and your morbidity is okay, you can go on and have another baby. But when there's consequences that are potentially long-term, there is the risk of this becoming a post-traumatic stress disorder. And and you speak about you know how in that initial sort of acute stress disorder stage or phase, it's important that one gets some kind of support or help. Take me through what that support or help would look like. That should happen as quickly as possible. Where somebody comes in and gives you almost a direction of where you're going to go emotionally. So someone normalizes your emotions for you. And when we have our feelings or any situation, in fact, made predictable, Mm. we cope better with it. Mm. So whatever the situation is, if somebody says this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, we go through the emotions, but we know there's an end to it. Mm. And we know why our brain is doing that. Our brain is made up of a whole lot of little folders. In order to make sense of anything that happens during our day, we've got to almost dream about it that first night and store it in these little folders. Mm. So if you've had a NICU NICU delivery before, so if your baby's been born early before, you've got that folder. Mm. Okay, you know... When you go into the ward, your baby's going to be full of tubes, possibly on a ventilator. Mm. So I'm not saying it makes it easy to deal with, but it's something familiar. So that is what we're trying to do when we debrief the person immediately is to try and make the future of what's going to happen a bit more predictable Mm. because we can create that little storage filter in our head and say, I know this was going to happen. I know my baby was going to look like this. I know this is my risks going forward. I mean, it's so interesting how how people are wired. and And I don't want to go off track too much. But as I'm listening to you speak, I'm thinking about how I'm thinking about the feeling I have when I feel certain versus when I feel uncertain. When I'm uncertain, you know, my thinking can go in multiple directions. I can feel like I'm I'm just, you know, I'm not stable. And yet when I have a feeling of certainty, whether that's because, you know, I've simulated, you know, the environment uh, to your point or or whether it's because somebody's given me more information, um, I do find that I'm, I feel a lot more empowered. So, So I suppose it is about creating that certainty which gives you know a person a certain sense of of relief almost or comfort or I, I i i i know what i'm dealing with yes and almost with a complication like pph or a potential for what it could do is as the woman or the couple's going through it is maybe saying a doctor saying for example this is going to happen then you might need a transfusion if this happens mm. then it might need an icu stay for you So almost predicting, not worst case scenario, but predicting a map going forward so that all of you know what could happen because if you're just suddenly bleeding out and then your uterus is removed, 
which is the worst case scenario, or you could you could die. We're not going to say to a patient, mm. you know, this could be the consequence. But if we're saying these are the steps we'll take, we'll do your blood levels, we'll check if there's anemia, you feel more confident because there's something going forward and there's a plan. Mm. There's a plan. If X happens, possibly we could do Y. I, I want to, to, to try and put myself in the shoes of, of, of the mother who's had this experience. So they, they experience postpartum hemorrhage. The reality is that they then have to stay in the hospital for a period. So for some, it's a short period. Others, it's, it's an extended period. My assumption then is that at some point, baby must go home and maybe baby goes home without mom. And so I'm wondering about the psychological impact of all of this on mom as it relates to her bonding with the baby. I'm curious as well about the psychological impact of this on that father or that caregiver or that, you know, partner who must now take this child home without mom. Let's talk a little bit about that. When you fall pregnant, there is suddenly this ideal that I'm going to be a mom and we start planning our values and our life going forward from that. We start planning how it's going to be when we have our gender reveal, when we have our baby shower, when we have our ideal birth plan, which is something I'll get to now, always have an alternative birth plan. Because yes, in the ideal world, it goes according to plan. But we also know reality is the doctor will often take control of that birth plan or your body will dictate the birth plan. So you have these expectations of going home and you're thinking your worst case scenario is not getting enough sleep. Then this happens. You haven't planned for it at all. So you feel absolutely robbed of that initial experience that everyone speaks so joyfully about, about holding your baby skin to skin, about feeding your baby in the ward, about going home and having people come to visit. So the first thing you feel is, my body failed me. Mm. Number two is I've been robbed of what I wanted. So there's this relentless feeling of of someone took something without my knowledge and without my control away from me. Then you're worried about the impact longer term with you and your baby. I need to tell the moms out there, when the baby is tiny, all it needs to be done is fed and nappy changed. Mm. Those are the two priorities. Your baby knows no different mm. at that point for that first period, so long as its basic needs are taken care of. In utero, your baby could hear your voice. So you can start reading to your baby while it's in your tummy. And even if you're not comfortable with that, it's familiar with your voice. So that bonding has started happening, mm. whether you like it or not. Mm. It is not this huge problem that's going to be placed on your relationship with the baby going forward, how you manage it, absolutely. If you've got a postnatal depression, let's diagnose that, let's help you deal with it because longer term you may be less available for your baby mm. if we don't deal with that. And, and I suppose, I mean, I'm thinking about this baby who I, I think it's important that we understand that one, that bonding happens before the baby comes and, and almost to, you know, to, to say to the moms who are listening, you know, you will have plenty of time once you are back on track and healthy to, to bond with your baby. And in the immediate sort of, uh, in, in, in the immediate, um, what do I want to say? Sort of in the immediate situation, you know, your baby is, is okay. 
uh, or you know your baby's fine let's let's take it to a situation where and I'm not trying to preempt a worst case scenario but to a situation where somebody does actually have uh, you know postpartum depression and um, this has been brought about by the postpartum hemorrhage what what impact could this then have on the child later in life? And would you go as far as to recommend that that child then undergo some kind of therapy? I think it depends on the impact of the postpartum depression on how the mother manages it. If we look at postnatal depression, it often is an anxiety more so than a withdrawal from the baby. So the moms I see are in fact more attached to those babies. They are more concerned. They are the moms who are rushing to the ER when there's a bit of a fever. Mm. They are the moms who are not allowing their babies to climb the swings at a local restaurant or to engage with kids their age because they're worried about infection. So by their very nature, they become over-cautious. So I'm not saying that there's a bonding difficulty where the baby feels mom's not available. But in the long term, maybe those babies develop a separation anxiety where they only want mom. Ah. So moms need to be aware of that and we can give them techniques that they can reverse that prior to when the baby is going to be aware of the fact that mom's more overprotective. If we pick it up soon enough, we start saying to mom, leave the baby for a little while longer. Let it get a cold. Hmm. And with age and the baby being healthier with age, moms tend to let go a little bit. So it happens naturally. Hmm. But we can help it happen a bit sooner. Hmm. So do I think it's going to create this big problem in the relationship between mom and child? No, I don't think so at all. I think it'll create a problem for you because you're going to be very anxious. And, and and so in situations where mom has has worked through you know the the postpartum hemorrhage and some of the uh, you know the, the the impact of it on her and on baby and whoever else is in is in her environment mom mom at some point then says you know I'd like to have another baby and and so I suppose my question is is you know would you how would a mother cope with the emotions that they then would experience now that they're considering a next pregnancy or find themselves having a, you know, a follow-on pregnancy? Um, would, would this PPH experience sort of have an impact or some kind of effect in, in subsequent pregnancies? In terms of the medical prognosis of a second pregnancy having a PPH, that I wouldn't be able to comment on because it has a lot of factors that we could then say – this mom is at risk for rupturing again. Mm. I've seen that in some of my moms who've maybe had triplets or quads where maybe they've ruptured and then they're very much at risk in the future of rupturing again. I've had moms who've had repeat laparotomies for certain reasons, so the uterus is a bit more vulnerable. Again, I'm not going to comment on that. I'm not a medical doctor. If we look psychologically, even if the doctor or the obstetrician is saying, you can go through this again, we can manage it, or we know why it happened, and we can manage that. Mm. Psychologically, once you've been through a pregnancy where there was a complication, I can tell you that 
you're not going to enjoy the pregnancy as much as you did before. And if you start off at a starting plan to say, yes, this caught me unawares before, I am aware that these things can happen, you are going to be a bit more realistic and you might be a bit more anxious. Mm. And just be mindful of that, Mm. that you're probably not going to be as naive, but you're going to be better prepared and you're going to know how I can potentially avoid this or what meds I can take or what the consequences are. Mm. And I think that's important, this idea that I, I, I am better prepared this time and because I'm better prepared, I can take the steps. Um, you know, whatever steps are necessary, I, yeah. I can take uh, because I am better prepared. Let's let's talk about a situation where you know this 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 expectant mother or this mother who's just delivered her baby, um, you know, suffers from or has postpartum hemorrhage, and as a result of it, actually has to have a hysterectomy. Now, this is where the uterus is removed. Uh, what mm. you know? What what do we say in in, in such an instance there. to a mother who's undergone something like that? Psychologically, I can imagine that the impact of this is incredibly heavy. What Absolutely. do you say in such situations? Yeah. You know, you're dealing here with the joy of hopefully a healthy baby, so new life, but you're dealing with the huge impact of this is it, right? This is the end. I can never carry a baby again. So you're dealing with a huge loss that for any woman, even if you've finished your family, even if you're in your 50s and you have a hysterectomy and you weren't going to have kids, Mm. there is associated a grief cycle that goes with it. It's normal. But now we sit with acutely being told this when we were not prepared for it at all. And we sit with having in parallel to be all joyful and happy about our baby. So we do have these two processes going on at once, and we have to allow ourselves to know we're going to go through a grief reaction. It's like losing one of two twins. Hmm. The one twin dies, you're grieving exceptionally for that twin, but I see that moms do connect to the other twin. Hmm. They do bond, and Hmm. it becomes special. So We've almost got to get the moms to say, this baby's unrelated. You can still have your joy and your excitement with that baby, but you're going to grieve the fact that there's not going to be more. Mm. And we bring in other options at that stage. It might be quite soon, but we do say there is the option potentially in the future of surrogacy. Mm. We just drop that thought in. They don't want to hear it right then. But we don't want them to emerge from there saying, this is it, and it's completely over. We just want to plant a little seed like we do with cancer patients Mm. to say it's not really, it's not always the end of the road. Mm. But you're going to be going through two processes, and generally grief is around about six months. Mm. Acutely, that first two to six weeks, and then intermittent sadness, anger, at why this happened, helplessness because the decision was completely out of your hands. Mm. But I've never known a mom to go and blame the delivery or her baby. Mm. They don't seem to associate the two. They don't walk around thinking, well, it's because I had you that I lost my uterus. The two are completely unrelated. 
And I think that's an important, an important point to, to make as well. I, I want to, I mean, you talk about, you know, as we're engaging with this mother, uh, we plant certain seeds and you mentioned sort of the seed of surrogacy as, as an example. Take me through that process. What What is the help or the support that we're giving them from a psychological sort of point of view? Is it is it counseling that, that's happening? Yes. So I strongly believe any mother who goes through or is admitted for some sort of complication in pregnancy has maybe a prim baby or a PPH or some sort of trauma should be debriefed by someone knowledgeable in the field, by a psychologist. Mm. We are so in a medical emergency geared towards looking at the physical health, the physician, the pediatrician. We're looking at the science of all of this because it is urgent in that moment. We could lose this mom. Mm. But we neglect to look at what the mom's actually going through. And I think if we had people or a nurse or somebody trained in this who could go in and give some sort of support, and just give options of what goes further. What are the signs we should look out for? What is the tra- trajectory going forward and the reality? Mm. It'll help a huge deal in that moment. And so having spoken to some of the professional support that you're advocating for, that you believe strongly um, should be made available uh, you know, to women who, who have suffered a postpartum hemorrhage, let's talk a little bit about the personal support. So, you know, what is the emotional impact and support that a family could provide, uh, you know, in, in a situation where mom's now just had a hysterectomy? I think extended family have to realize the husband is going through exceptional stress. Remember, often with the PPH, the, it's an emergency. The husband is maybe there. The baby's maybe given to the mom. Things look like they're going well. And the next minute... Dad is having to be rushed out of theater, and it's basically the message is, your wife is critical. We've got to go in and sort something out. He is tied between possibly losing his wife and having to have a look after this newborn baby. Hmm. His prime concern is, I might lose my wife. So he's got to relinquish that baby to the nurses. That is not his concern right then and there. Usually these babies hopefully are not preterm and they can go to maternity and be looked after. He is dealing with the potential of losing his wife and years down the line, I see these men with this irrational fear that persists into the next delivery. It persists into their wife going into any sort of surgical procedure, however harmless it is. They have this feeling of I'm going to lose her. Mm. And then it extends to their baby. They almost, they got to be strong and they're stereotypically strong. But whenever there's something that could potentially be a problem for their baby or their wife going into the future, they react with this anxiety. So who needs the support in that moment? The mom is often not aware of what's going on. And if she is, the husband then can support the baby or just give her updates on the baby because that is what she wants to know in that moment. But if she's unavailable to do that or she's feeling too unwell, the support needs to go to the the husband. Mm. He's going through a major amount of anxiety in that moment in terms of what's happening to his wife. If he's got other kids, take those roles over. 
He's not going to come home and have this ideal plan of putting them to bed at night. And that is not important right now. Mm. In that moment, he needs to be at the hospital with his wife. So as extended family, you take over the meals Mm. and taking care of the kids and his job. This is where colleagues must step up because it's not just about my wife had a baby and yes, now everything's fine. It's about I nearly lost my wife. I'm more anxious to go to work after three days of only being at home. I would have been fine, but give me a bit more time to be with my wife who's now home. Mm. So colleagues need to be aware that it is not just a delivery that eventually turned out right. Mm. It is something that could have been a death. And I mean, you raise you raise two points that I want I wanted to explore. The the first of those points is around this idea of 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 the support that we need to give to the partner, the father, but the person who's also sort of experiencing this alongside the mother. And I suppose, and again, I'm trying to just put myself in the shoes of somebody who's in the experience. And and typically, I think what we see happen is that there's just so much to get done that one almost kind of goes into this autopilot mode. Mm -hmm. And so my question then becomes, is one even able to spot when they need help? No. And and I think that's the thing is that sometimes we miss that we need help. We're just getting on with the things that need to be done, like a frantic to-do list. How do you know that you need help? Oftentimes in the moment you have no clue and it's only after the fact. I believe if your acute signs are not sleeping, if you in that moment you're being automatic so you'll often skip meals, you just won't eat and the body's not going to function. You're going to get worse and worse without sleep and without food. But the majority of the time, I think it's important that somebody come in, somebody tell you what the warning signs are or tell you what's normal. And if anything goes beyond that, I think you should be given help anyway. Mm-hmm. It's a trauma. Speak to someone. The biggest way to deal with a trauma is what we call flooding. It means just speak to someone about the events that happened. They don't need to fix it. The biggest thing with any trauma victim is allow them to tell their story Mm. and allow them to tell it again and again. And the interesting thing is every time they tell their story, they bring in other cues that they remember. Mm. They then suddenly remember something else. And if you say to them, what is the one thing you remember about what happened while you were with your wife, that same thing, that would be the most traumatic that they bring up. But that same thing, the next day it would be a bit different Mm. and the next day a bit different. So that's something you can do as a grandparent, as a sibling, as as a nurse, as a a doctor is just say, tell me your story. Tell me what you went through Mm. because that in itself is psychological help. I mean, that's powerful. Um, This idea that just through asking that simple question, you can get, I mean, it's, it, it gives you cues. 
mm-hmm. around sort of this is where the mental state of this person is. And we're going to come to a question around mental health and a person who might be struggling. I'm going to come to that, but I want to come to my second question. Um, and the second question I had around, you know, when you were sharing about the support that we need to give, you know, to fathers who are part of this process was related to the comment you made about the importance of our work colleagues and the ways in which they can support us. And so I wanted to explore that a little bit within the context of, you know, circles of support. So let's talk a little bit about that. What are some of the, 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 what is the support that one could typically rely on in a situation of this nature? And I want you to extend it to colleagues, et cetera, and even maybe give practical ideas around things they could do to offer that support. If we look at what we call circles of support, the person who's going through that event in the moment, you draw them in the middle of the circle. So that's the woman. The outer circle to that is her husband. The outer circle to that is the parents. And then brothers or sisters, then friends, then extended family, and then colleagues. And the diagram says that the further out you are away from that person, you must give support inwards. Mm. So what can colleagues and what can you do if you're further out in that circle of support is give practical things. When you ask the person in the middle, what can I do for you? Keep in mind, in that moment of trauma, we do not process concrete steps. We will not think, please, can you cook me a meal? will either be too reluctant to ask or our brains do not even go there. Our brains are so busy just struggling to, is my wife okay? Is my baby okay? What is happening that we don't think of those practical things? So you've got to think of your own given day. What are the things you automatically do not think about that you just do? That would be things like a colleague taking over, answering your urgent emails. It would be sending flowers. It would be something like dropping off a meal at the hospital. Mm. Yes, the husband can walk down to the canteen and buy a meal, but let me tell you, when you are super traumatized, Mm. nobody's going to do that. And I remember when I lost my mom, the most important thing was a cousin coming in with KFC and just dumping it there, not expecting anything in return, not asking what he could do, just putting a big tub there. Mm. And that prompted us to eat. So do the basics. Mm. Give them potentially a night off. Go visit the wife for them if that's what they want. Don't impose yourself on it. Mm. Maybe feel the calls. Even as a colleague, you can form a group, an admin-only group of people around who can just field the questions and give updates so that you don't overwhelm those people lower down in the circle with all these messages. Mm. They're not interested right now. And if you do send a message, send one that is open-ended that doesn't need a reply. Mm. Not a, how are you? Never send a message like that to someone who is potentially in a grief situation or a trauma situation. That's too open-ended and they feel they have to respond. Rather, I'm thinking about you. They can then choose. Mm. I mean, these are such powerful suggestions and I think things that we we can take for granted. And often I think it's because we don't know how to carry ourselves around life situations that don't go the way 
that that we expect them to. I think we almost just don't know how to how to carry ourselves around situations that that don't go you know as we had expected. So so I love the practicality of the suggestions that you're putting forward. I'm seeing that you're wanting to contribute something else. I wanted to say not only do we not know what to say, we also don't want to potentially trigger that person. Mm. So we walk around on tippy toes not saying something that might potentially upset them. So we don't say anything. We don't acknowledge they've had a baby. We don't acknowledge they're going through a hard thing. We should actually just be saying to them, I don't know what to say. Mm. I don't know what the right words are to say. Mm. And as humans, we always want to hear from someone, I'm doing fine. Even if we can clinically see they're not doing fine, it's like, okay, because we want to fix things. We don't like discomfort because we don't know how to manage it. So what does that create in other people is just saying all the time, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, and then we walk away, we're okay. I'm saying the more deep you are in the circle, you are allowed to dump outwards, and you are allowed to say I'm not fine, Mm -hmm. and let them deal with it how they must deal with it. And, and I mean, just, just building on what you're saying, if we think about this from the perspective of mental health, I think there is a tendency to tiptoe around mental health. And often I think it's because we see it as a weakness and particularly admitting, you know, to, to, to mental health issues or having some kind of mental health issue. What advice would you give to somebody who says, well, I'm trying to be strong, you know, for the family, but this person is in actual fact suffering in silence. Um, what what would you say to somebody who finds himself in that situation? Sometimes being strong, especially in a relationship or in a friendship, or portraying that strength actually gives the wrong message to the other person because they start thinking you don't care and I'm weak. And this is where I love the term behavioral medicine. Mm. Because it's not mental issues or mental health or mental disorders. It's saying behavioral medicine is about taking care of the mind in relation to something medical. So in this situation, it is exactly that. It is something medical that we also need to take care of the mind. And it's almost like a life coach. It's almost saying if we can just coach you through what's about to happen. Let's take the word psychology out of it. Mm. It is actually giving skills to dealing with a situation that's abnormal, Mm. not you that's abnormal. Mm. Take it away from the individual and look outside and say, the situation you went through is abnormal. Let's teach you how to manage this abnormal situation. It has nothing to do with you. Any individual in your situation would react that way. And they might say, I'm being strong. There's nothing wrong. And you say, that's okay. Let me tell you what other people go through. Mm. So you're doing it one removed. And let's just say to you what you could potentially go through. And believe me, they'll hear the message loud and clear. And they'll recognize it. And sometimes they don't need to admit. But just hearing that, Mm. they resonate with it. And inside they're feeling, this is okay. This is normal. Gives them a bit of permission to feel what they're feeling, and and after, I mean, again, I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to think about the, the practical sort of 
how does this all play out practically? So would this person then be engaging with a, a psychologist necessarily? Um, you know, does the healthcare facility provide that psychologist that they would engage with? Help me, you know, to understand. I'm, I'm this dad who's, who's, who's feeling like things are not okay. I'm not coping. Is, mm. is that kind of, you know, assistance, support, help provided within the healthcare facility? There's certain hospital groups who in the past had someone who would maybe go in. As there was a complication, there would be a brochure or a list of people they could potentially call. As time has passed, and especially with COVID, of course, it was not possible to do that. And we know staff work certain hours and there's not always someone on call or no one familiar with it. Ideally, what we need is to maybe train a unit manager and a nurse and an accounts manager and like a team who can mm. come in for the at-risk patient with just an initial consult where they don't need to be super trained in how to manage this, but just a debriefing session and maybe information mm. in terms of a brochure or an outline of what you're going to go through and then with numbers. We can't force people to go and see someone. We can provide them with the knowledge and allow them to speak, and that can be done in the hospital, and then we're giving it out to them. Mm. And they need to do with it what they want. But ideally, it would be in a trauma situation, and I'm talking in an accident situation, COVID, we saw in COVID around the world, Fortunately, I could work on the, the front line with the mothers who were delivering and the surrogates. I deal with a lot of surrogates and moms who were maybe having stillbirths. Husbands weren't allowed in. I was allowed to go into theater and dress up in PPE. So fortunately, I was there. But again, I was limited to one hospital group, to one location. We need a team in there. Mm. And we saw how well it worked during covid we need a team and they can go into anyone with a traumatic anything that happens at a hospital to come in and just one debriefing session and then give resources. Well, my hope is that, uh, you know, just in having these these conversations that even those who are listening who might be part of the medical fraternity might be inspired to to do something about that. And I think it's a it's a wonderful call to action to say, mm -hmm. let's let's get empowered. And, you know, if we're the internal sort of hospital staff, you know, let's get empowered to be able to provide the service as well. I, I want to, I mean, as you may, as you spoke to numbers, and I know you were talking about the physical contact numbers that we provide on that brochure or whatever. I couldn't help but think to the financials around some of this, you know, that, you know, even getting that psychologist has a financial implication. Uh, you know, staying on longer at the hospital has got a financial implication. And I'm just wondering about some of the psychological impact of that. A family who says we can't afford beyond, uh, you know, what, 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 mm. what we have been able to do um, up to this point how do we how do we manage or deal with such situations what are some of the financial um, you know psychological impact of all of this so financially going through any complication in terms of PPH or premature delivery costs a fortune even even if you're not on medical 
even if you're on medical aid, there's always out-of-pocket expenses. So parents already have this on their mind, but in that moment, they will do anything Mm. in their power to save their baby, right? Mm. So it justifies the medical side for them in some way, especially if their baby comes out healthy. Mm. Very different if it doesn't because, again, remember I said that the thinking then says, I've paid all of this money, I'm Mm. still paying, and I've lost my baby. My baby died. Then we have psychologists and they're expensive and they're private. It's not as simple as it used to be where we would have a whole lot of interns working in a hospital where you could go and speak to a therapist. Right now, there's very few support groups that are out there in terms of specifics of PPH or premature delivery. There is a certain group that is looking at taking all the NICU moms. So this is the moms of ICU babies. There's one hospital that takes all these moms and a nurse or a unit manager will every day get these moms to meet at the ward while they're there anyway looking after their babies. Mm. And they talk about what they're going through or what is tube feed versus bottle feed, what is ventilation versus CPAP. Mm. So... New mothers being initiated into the NICU are then introduced to this group of women. Mm. So it's taking existing resources of patients who've gone through it Mm. and using them to go forward. There are certain support groups if you lose your baby or you have a miscarriage. Mm. There are support groups that run online and in person. Mm. But for specifics, it's sometimes very hard to find a support group. You can reach out to an organization like SADAC and give them a call, which is a South African anxiety and depression group. And they usually have a list of resources that possibly are available to mm. you. I mean, I think, I think the, the, the challenges experienced from a kind of healthcare perspective are so, there are so many. And I love what you're saying about you know, this one hospital who, who, who give us a beautiful example of, of, you know, how, how we can just take what we have and do the best with it. So this idea that we use the existing resources, um, you know, to, to deal with the, the challenge that, that, that confronts us in the moment. I like that. Mm. I like this idea that, you know, uh, the, the, the mothers who've gone through that experience can become an avenue of support for those who are currently experiencing it. And again, I think, you know, part of the power of this conversation has been these wonderful, very practical suggestions that you bring to the fore, um, leveraging some of the you know experiences that you've had. And I think for anybody who's sitting uh, listening to this, I know that they will take rich nuggets, not just on, you know, the importance of the psychological aspect, but the ways in which we can provide support to each other. I think it's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, if, 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 you know, in closing, I almost want to ask, you know, if there's a nugget or something or a couple of things that are sitting in your heart space, in your mind, uh, that you'd like to share with those who are listening, what, what would those be? I'd like to say that if I look at the trauma groups I work with, if I look at the bereavement groups I work with, each of those organizations are run by somebody who has been passionate about a trauma they've been through. And they've taken their story and they've created something for other women Mm. or for other couples to benefit. So even when trauma is beyond what we ever expected, 
there are numerous examples of people who've gone out there and made a difference given their story. Your trauma doesn't have to be senseless. Mm. You can actually make a huge difference or a small difference in someone's life, whether it be going to the ICU and giving a little teddy bear. I've got some moms who might crochet a little teddy bear for a mom or a little letter or a little card, a little inspiration. It just all those small pieces start making a difference or giving a sense of meaning to what you went through. Mm. So it needn't be for nothing. There can be a happy story. And so I'm going to close it there because I think it's just such a fitting close. I love that, uh, you know, that, that statement, your trauma does not need to be senseless. And I think it's just such a powerful call to action. I am going to say thank you so much, Mandy Rodriguez, clinical psychologist in private practice. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for your generous sharing and very practical suggestions. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the hashtag Faring Pod. Join the conversation by following us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube under Faring South Africa. Have you been diagnosed with IBD? Download the Faring IBD Health Diary app today. The Faring IBD Health Diary app is available on the Apple App Store and the Android Google Play Store.